Hello, welcome to the Bomb Squad podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about Atlantis, the Lost Empire. I would like to begin us out with a quote by Plato, because that's how a good podcast starts. Afterwards, there occurred box office losses and market shifts, and in a single year of misfortune, all your 2D Disney films sank into the earth, and the Disney renaissance in like manner disappeared into the depths of the sea. Plato, Timius. So, uh, yeah, we're talking about the cult movie directed by Gary Truesdale and Kurt Wise, Atlantis the Lost Empire, which by some people is considered the end of the Disney renaissance due to its colossal box office failure. So, uh, we're all of a certain age. I kind of want to start off with a question. What's your history with this movie? How, how do you feel about this movie when you were a kid? What was it like? What was your first experience with this movie like? Show. Okay, I'll, I guess I'll go first then. So when I was a kid, um, we never saw this in theaters. We waited till it came out on video because I think my parents were just kind of unsure about whether or not we would actually be into it. And I, I guess they weren't interested in sitting through it, at least in a the theater. We rented it from Blockbuster when it came out. I fell asleep half, halfway through it. <laughs> Because I guess when I was a tiny, tiny five-year-old boy, it, it just did not capture my imagination. And then as I got older, my parents split up. We moved to Iowa. My mom had bought like a ton of like DVDs for my younger siblings because they were like in elementary school at the time. We were also driving around a lot and my mom's car had a TV in it. So we'd watch movies in the back of her car. Atlantis was one of them. And by this point, I was like 16, 17, somewhere around there. Watched it maybe one or two times in those car trips that we would take. It was kind of just, I thought it was okay. Was never blown away by it. And then I, I just rewatched it before we started recording. Uh, li- literally before we started recording. Whoa. And it is still very, very, very Okay. In fact, I think it's a little underwhelming. That's a big start. Tim, <laughs> what was your growing up with this movie like? So, um, yeah, like Joe had said, I uh, didn't see it in the theater. I think it's one of those ones that um, it got kind of under-advertised, kind of like Iron Giant. It was one of those things where when I would see trailers for it, it would be like, that looks cool, and then would never have any idea of how or where to watch it. But then, like, when it came out at Blockbuster, I rented the tape uh, at one point. And, um, yeah, as a kid, I really liked it. Uh, it was different from the other Disney movies I had watched. Uh, it, it was a more serious, action-oriented kind of thing. And, like, this is coming from someone whose favorite uh, Disney animated film is The Black Cauldron. So as you can tell, I like edgy Disney movies that flop in theaters. Uh, that's just my that's just my go to. So yeah, I, I I think I thought it was a really solid, different movie from what I was used to as a kid, and a lot of my formative years were gearing up to me uh, getting into anime, and this was this was probably in some part part of that because it was a more action-y Disney thing and that that's kind of what I would 
end up finding more of in anime and whatnot. And I guess speaking of anime, uh, this this might be a good time to we we can bring that up yet. No, fuck it, let's go. Yeah, bring it All up. All right, open that box. <laughs> so so uh, as we were talking about doing this podcast, uh, our our good friend of the group, Ethan. He he brought up that this has sort of a controversy because it is uh, uh, it, it quite possibly plagiarized the uh, series Nadia from 1990, which uh, I'm not super familiar with that particular anime, so I can't say too much about it beyond what I kind of looked up on Wikipedia. Apparently there was um, some controversy because... Um, the people who made Nadia found out that that this movie was really taking a lot of concepts like directly from the series. There were talks of going into legal action, uh, but the people who are on the side of the anime committee were just like, no, we're not fighting Disney's lawyers. Uh, we're just going to take the L on this one. So so yeah that that's something the learning that it's it kind of taints the film a little bit but it's it's also just kind of classic disney like one of the few times i really like a disney movie of course it's fucking plagiarized um <laughs> okay when re- when reading about that particular lawsuit it was funny because the creators that, that was a gynax show right like neon genesis evangelion gynax right uh i i believe so it actually wasn't up to them whether they could pursue legal action or not. They had to deflect to NHK whether or not to sue Disney. And NHK uh, is like the big national Japanese network, right? Like it is the big dick Japanese network. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) So um, NHK being a monolith in Japan, basically their authority channel still pushed out which makes me wonder who the fuck is on Disney's legal committee. <laughs> yeah, uh, D- Disney just has a whole team of Cochrans that are just going to fucking obliterate you even if they're 100% in the wrong. It's just a bunch of Johnny Cochran clones, <laughs> they're all robots. If the crystal fits, you must acquit. <laughs> and then they, they have a live-scale <laughs> model of those machines. They put their hand on it and they do the turning. <laughs> My childhood experience with this was a little bit more, like, colorful. I didn't fall asleep, and I did get to see it in theaters, fortunately. If you go back and you see the 2001 theatrical trailer for Atlantis The Lost Empire, what stuck out in my mind as a little kid was how it ends. It ends with Kida, the romantic interest in the film, turn, like in her blue form with her white eyes, saying some creepy Atlantean shit, and then it, got, it cuts to the, like, a release date of the movie, and it written in Atlantean, and then it turns over and tells you when the movie was coming out. And that created this creepy, mystical vibe where I was like, oh, this Disney movie is dangerous. And I was proven right, because for the longest time, the fate of the villain in this movie stuck out in my mind. Like, I would get cuts as a little kid, just, like, random scrapes and bruises, and I'd be scared of that happening to me because of what happens to the villain in this film. So it made a bit of an impression. I, I think we need a quick discussion about McDonald's toys, right? Oh, so, boy. <laughs> real quick here. 
in my opinion, of all the movie tie-in toys that McDonald's ever gave out, the one that I coveted the most, the one I thought was the dopest, was not the giant five-part Inspector Gadget Transformer. It was the, the crystal necklace toy that they gave out for Atlantis. I, I remember those. I had one. It was a necklace that you could wear as a kid that glowed blue. I could not think of a cooler toy for McDonald's to give out. Do either of you have like a movie tie-in toy for McDonald's that you put above the crystal necklace in your minds? Oh, God. Um, Burger King for a little while did uh, – they, they actually did it twice within the same year. They had like Star Wars released toys from like 2005, so – when Revenge of the Sith came out in theaters, they had like a whole line of like Star Wars related toys. And then towards November for the DVD release, they basically made like a whole new series of like Burger King toys for it. Like d- different characters and everything. <laughs> and they also around the DVD release, they also had the uh, the Star Wars watches where it was like watches from like each of like the six movies. And they were like flip watches. So it's like I think the Phantom Menace one was like Obi-Wan and Darth Maul. Empire was um, I think it was like Boba Fett and Han Solo. Return of the Jedi was Jabba and Leia. Yeah, their their Star Wars lines I I put pretty high up in my mind. Tim, what about movie tie-in toys from your childhood? Which did you covet the most? So uh, these these aren't technically movies, but uh, I remember there are two – McDonald's uh, toy lines that really stick in my head. Um, one was a couple of times they did uh, Yu-Gi-Oh tie-in things where they would uh, give you a little pack that had like I, like three or five cards. And I think the first time they did it was when they would give it out with a CD that had one of the little songs that they would play in the I, first season of the show. <laughs> I remember those. <laughs> I vividly remember those. And then uh, the second time they did it, it was like during the GX era. So it was uh, like three or five cards and then uh, these little toys of some of the select cards that would come in the packs. Um, that, that was the one time that I actually like really got those. I don't think I got the first run ever, but I remember like me and my brother were big into the card game at this particular time. And so, like, we would be going over to McDonald's. We, we were doing what adults are doing now with the Pokemon shit. We were just, like, would get, like, two Happy Meals a piece, And <laughs> then we'd have all of the cards from two Happy Meals. We'd have enough to fill ourselves because we were Hardy's kids at that point. The other one is when they were doing stuff for Bionicles. They would have, like, the little Matorans. Which, like, they later remade Matorans to be more cool, I guess. that Like, more than five pieces. It was it was a thing that was, like, right when Bionicles were a thing that were coming out, were getting big, and, like, I was trying to get every piece of the Bionicle lore that I could get my hands on. Like, I was getting the comic books from DC. I was collecting the toys and getting, like, whatever I could find. Quick side note that's kind of on topic with Tim, but it'll divert just a little bit. Did you ever, because uh, you you were mentioning Yu-Gi-Oh, did you ever get like the uh, the Burger King Yu-Gi-Oh, the movie stuff? Um, I didn't, I don't think I got any of the Burger King Yu-Gi-Oh movie. So like I, I 
I remember going to the theater when it came out and like we would get the cards that they would give us with the packs. I can't remember if it was like they gave you all of the cards or if they gave you a random select card. That was like 15 years ago. That um, sounds about right. But then like in 2017, they did the new movie Dark Side of Dimensions and that one came with a free obelisk card. And what was really cool about the time that I went to see it, I I think every theater did it differently. When I went to see it, like we were just walking out of the theater and some fucking dude in a suit was just handing the cards out to everybody. So it was like somebody from Kaiba Corp was giving out these obelisk cards. I guess a uh, quick descriptor of uh, those Burger King things that I was talking about, but uh, it was like a a tie in for Yu-Gi-Oh! the movie. They had like these like I, I guess it also just like depended on the monster, but most of them were like those little launch toys where you'd like plug it in and then hit a button and it would launch. But they would always come in like there's like the plastic wrap, but it came with like its own little like triangle like Millennium Puzzle type uh, thing that you could like hold it in. It, w- it was a very interesting tie in toy for that movie. Yeah, I think that's similar to what they did for the like GX era McDonald's toys as it was like some of those pull back and they launch type things. <laughs> All right, to get us back on track, Austin. Yeah, we've been talking about not Atlantis for a while. Yeah, yeah no, it's fine <laughs> uh, because I, I'm, I'm OK with us talking about not Atlantis for a second because I want people to feel what happened when Atlantis came out because there were supposed to be a few other people on this podcast that would have been more enthusiastic about Atlantis, but just like when Atlantis came out, they didn't show up. (laughs) (laughs) This, this movie was a box office bomb, which is weird because it's a Disney box office bomb. So it still made an inordinate amount of money. It made like, over $100 million in theaters, but that could not cover the budget because this was a movie with a lot of CGI and some very complicated 2D cell animation. For the budget, I want to I wanna reference an Invader Zim episode. There was this episode of Invader Zim that was released in August of 2001, and it was called A Room with a Moose. And there's a scene in the episode with a CGI walnut going through a CGI portal. And if you get the DVD, uh, there's a commentary track on that episode. And the people who are helping making the episode, they talk about how that one CGI walnut fucked up their whole budget for the season. A 3D walnut. 3D, 3D walnuts. walnuts. The most expensive <laughs> walnuts ever. Right I didn't like, ask for 3D walnuts. We just got them and... And it wrecked the budget for the rest of the season. Is that right? Was it really expensive? Well, we were going to have the season end with a giant space battle, but they had blown the budget on the walnuts. <laughs> because back in 2001... CGI costs so much fucking money, especially if you wanted it to blend in with 2D animation. So what do you get with Atlantis? Before this movie even comes out, it has an $120 million budget just for the film, right? Before marketing, before the tie-ins, before anything, $120 million fucking dollars. And uh, yeah, it didn't even double that. So let's, uh, now that there's been... You know, a lot of time, though, we've grown up. The three of us have film backgrounds, and we've all rewatched the movie. Tell me, what do you think of Atlantis now that you're older? That's fine. <laughs> Tim, <laughs> Tim, sum- summarize in a sentence. What do you think of Atlantis? 
Yeah, I mean, I I still enjoy it a lot. Um, just revisiting it, I would say that um, it's less of a novel thing for me now because I've seen better examples of what uh, was presented in that movie. I've I've seen a lot of sci-fi animation, a lot of action animation. I still think there's plenty to enjoy about it. There's plenty to appreciate, um, but I, I guess it's not something that I would say is as big of a part of my life now as it would have been back then. It's still a cool action movie. Uh, I, I would still buy the Blu-ray for it. Um, I, I, I think it's in the vault, but you can get anything on Amazon these days. I would still put it highly in regards to like my uh, Disney animated films. But yeah, while while I'm here, I think I'll jump into a topic I kind of wanted to talk a bit about because at one point I was going to just do a bit in this podcast where I would just uh, say, I think it's important for us to acknowledge the direct-to-video sequel Atlantis Milo's Return. And now that we've done that, we can move on. Uh, but then I actually did some research <laughs> and there's actually kind of an interesting story as to how that came to be. So, really? uh, yeah. So like, like you were mentioning Austin, uh, that they, they spent a lot of money on this movie. They really wanted this to be a big success. They wanted to franchise the fuck out of it and make it a huge thing. So while they were making this movie, down in the pipeline, they had a couple of future projects in mind. One of them was a theatrical sequel titled Shards of Chaos. And then after the movie flopped, that got canceled. But then there was another project that they were in development of. It was a uh, television series called Team Atlantis. And they made three episodes of that. And after the film flopped... They decided to just basically recut those three episodes into the movie Milo's Return, and they added some extra animation to give it more of a, a slightly more connected feel. But like I was watching that movie the other day, and without even before I even did any research, I was like, I can already tell that this is three episodes of a planned show. Because the first plot of this movie is them dealing with this Kraken thing. That gets resolved in like 20, 21 minutes. And then they're doing this dust coyote thing. And then that gets resolved in another 20 minutes. And then they're doing this weird uh, Norse mythology thing after that. So, yeah, it, it was pretty obvious that this was originally supposed to be like an episodic thing that ended up getting cut into a movie but and another interesting thing about this planned show was uh, that I just found out today by looking deeper into it. There was supposed to be there was a planned episode where they would feature a cameo from Demona from Gargoyles. And this was going to be like a whole tie in thing where this particular episode is canon to the Gargoyles uh, universe. Wait, Atlantis takes place in the same universe as gargoyles apparently i I don't fucking know how that's supposed to work (laughs) clearly you know 
Disney has its geniuses and they were playing some 40 chess. They were making an extended Atlantean universe and it got shot in the head by Shrek of all movies. <laughs> Atlantis, get out of my swamp. <laughs> I think it's such a funny story of how Atlantis became a box office bomb. Uh, because there was this guy who was really high up at Disney. It was like, what, their former CEO or something, Jeffrey Katzenberg. And he made his exit, you know, prior to Atlantis being made so that he could go work over at DreamWorks and make different kinds of movies. And then fucking Shrek comes out right along the same time as Atlantis. And audiences clearly decided they wanted Shrek. They did not want the Disney movie with more explosions and less songs. It was the <laughs> ultimate betrayal. And Disney, a former Disney person, went and made the movie that buried the Atlantis franchise. <laughs> What's funny about Shrek is I read something that, like, when they were making Shrek, it was the, like, joke project where, like, if you were fucking up on Prince of Egypt, they were going to just send you over to Shrek. <laughs> and, and then Shrek was the big successful movie. <laughs> Oh my god. Shrek was the meme movie? Shrek was a shit post? Sh- Shrek was a shit post before it became a shit post. That's insane. <laughs> it was destiny. The people working on it were just like, what opening song should we use for this big movie that we just made? And they're like, fucking Smash Mouth. <laughs> to, uh, to quote M. Night Shyamalan, it's like it was meant to be. <laughs> <laughs> I think that um, another contrasting movie, because Shrek is the movie that really just buried this in the box office and ushered in an age of Disney trying to ride the CGI bandwagon and not repeat the mistake they made with Atlantis, the Lost Empire. But, Joe, you were on a podcast earlier this year about a movie that's very fucking similar to Atlantis, the Lost Empire, the Treasure Planet podcast. Explain to me, why is Treasure Planet... A good cult classic, but Atlantis doesn't do it for you. For me, I think it all comes down mostly to pacing. Part of the f- uh, fun of uh, of Treasure Planet specifically is that there is a fun buildup um, to finding this uh, treasure that they're all trying to find. And also there's like a decent amount of like character work done throughout that whole buildup. You actually like get to know them like even if it's like very um, like small bits of character things, it's like you, you get a feel for who they are. For me, Atlantis, its biggest problem is its pacing. This movie is um, an hour and 38 minutes, right? It, it's not it's not that mm. long of a movie. And it feels like all of the buildup to getting to Atlantis is non-existent. They just kind of rush through a lot of that opening buildup to get to Atlantis. And at first it feels like it's kind of being played off as a joke because they're uh, the guy who uh, recruits him to go to Atlantis, gives him the ship is like a very fast talking, jokey kind of character. But then it just kind of kept moving at a quick pace. Just things were happening so fast and the dialogue was so quick and then by the time that you get to Atlantis, things like slow down and you actually get to know the main character better. I, I don't know. There, there, there's just something about that that just does not work for me. I guess to kind of uh, use another example 
that I, I think is better, but it's also kind of a problem. It's kind of the reverse problem for another Disney movie from like the 80s, but this is like a live action thing. Uh, Flight of the Navigator has this problem, but in reverse, where the buildup to um, what this uh, alien ship is, they actually take time to do it. You get to know the character, and then all the stuff with the ship is just, you get there, and it doesn't feel like that there's that much of it. And that's a shame, because all the stuff on the ship is like the most fun stuff of that movie. Even if I love that buildup, Everything on the ship is fun, but there's not enough of it. With this, uh, when I was rewatching it, I had a lot of emotions when I first saw the intro Disney title card. Because it's got these really nice, like, caustics that might have been done in CG, although they might have been hand animated. Because I don't know if either of you know about computer graphics, but caustics, the light reflections off water waves, those are some of the hardest things to do. And uh, they have it all over the Disney logo. It, it like, sets the mood. And I'm, I'm reintroduced to Milo Thatch and all of this this whole wonderful, like, 1914 or whatever this takes place setting. And I'm thinking, this is going to be great. And by the time that the submarine, the massive submarine is going down because Milo has finally got the Shepherd's Journal and a guy who's going to fund his trip down to Atlantis who used to know his grandfather, the great explorer, the ship is going down and I'm thinking, this is going to be fucking awesome. And then five minutes later, that submarine is being destroyed by the final level of Super Monkey Ball. Wait, no, the <laughs> Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, th- th- that's something that kind of upset me because, yeah, no, I-, I-, I was kind of beginning to feel the magic when they're on that submarine. And I got to admit, the score really freaking helps for it. That like theme as they're going under the water, fucking solid. And then that thing just gets destroyed not too long after. And I'm just like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> They did this awesome A-team ship where the rich guy who's just like doing naked yoga in front of our protagonist is just like, listen, I- I'm movie rich. I paid for a whole boat full of people, all right? Here's the boat. Here's where the people sleep. There's like a billion people here. This is going to be a grand epic quest. And then they're just like, nope. What about what about like one twentieth of that? That's That's your characters now. Uh, One thing I thought was funny was that this movie does something I don't know if other Disney movies do. Uh, They have a lot of sequences where people die. They've just got characters that are introduced for like one shot and they'll just be driving a vehicle just so you can see their face doing some Star Wars stuff like, oh, no, no, no. And then boom, they're fucking dead. (laughs) I remember that moment when they're under the water and Porkins showed up. Porkin? (laughs) Yeah, Porkins from A New Hope, the fat one that gets blown up. (laughs) (laughs) Tim, did you think that this thing had pacing issues among rewatching? Did it did it feel right to you? Was it moving too fast, moving too slow? What did you want more of? Oh, I mean, I, I didn't notice pacing issues personally. I, I thought it was a decent, like, 100-minute uh, Disney action thing. Um, like, I, I wasn't really paying, I guess too much attention to that but it, like it makes sense what you're saying like it's it's definitely very fast i guess i would say um maybe we don't get enough build up of like the villain at the end of it because like you get the whole thing where uh it's a oh, plot twist we're gonna we're gonna take over all this stuff and screw you guys over before that like 
the main villain guy and the the lady. I, I, I'm bad with names. Um, there's an air of them not quite uh, jiving with the main character, but at the same time, like we we don't quite get enough of. Oh, they're just gonna screw them over at the end. I don't know. Yeah, you've got. Uh, I think his 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 name is Rourke, the army guy. Yeah. And then you've got Helga Sinclair, who is distinctively mm-hmm. animated like she's from a different movie. It feels like whoever designed Jessica Rabbit designed her, but <laughs> toned it back. There was that one dude. I, 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 I was getting, like, in her intro, I, I felt like th- this guy took over whoever designed De- Jessica Rabbit. There's this guy in Hollywood, and his name is Sexist Todd, and uh, he designed <laughs> Jessica Rabbit and the lady from Cool World, and he helped out with uh, Justice League, the Joss Whedon cut. Sexist Todd walked onto Disney Studios Animation, and uh, they were like, okay, we have a female character who's supposed to be a villain, and he's like, say no more, and he started lining his office with all these, you know, pinup girls <laughs> and, and just vintage pornography, and they're like, that's Sexist Todd. He does. He does the oversexualized characters of this movie. He's going to be in Hollywood forever. But was he also responsible for Lola Bunny? He was responsible for Lola Bunny. <laughs> <laughs> this was a like Jessica Rabbit meets uh, Laura Croft type character. It felt like I could see that too. Yeah, which is funny <laughs> because uh, do we want to talk about the movie that beat this out at the box office? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, of course. So this movie was beaten out by the 2001 camp classic Laura Croft Tomb Raider starring Angelina Jolie. (laughs) (laughs) Number one at the box office, Atlantis fell behind at number two. It's funny to think that if Atlantis had succeeded at the box office, it would have transformed the way people's childhoods would have played out. Because, you know, every Disney thing that succeeds, it just permeates into everyone's collective memory. Disney movies, especially from the Renaissance age, are instantly iconic. You get all these tie-ins, the characters pop up in shows on their network. And that was ultimately defeated by Shrek and Tomb Raider. (laughs) Your childhood got capped by Laura Croft eventually. <laughs> Angelina Jolie just woke up that morning and just hated Disney. That, that's a rephrase of a quote from that movie. <laughs> there was a version of this that was commented on in the earlier stages, and I want to see if you guys think this is awful. There was a comic book artist named Mike Magnola. I think what? he's known for doing Hellboy stuff. Yeah, right? he, he's the Hellboy guy. Yeah. Believe it or not, this movie's animation style was done intentionally to look like Mike Mignola. So they dragged him into a screening thing one day and they sat him down and he's like, why the fuck am I here? This is a Disney thing. Why am I here? I made Hellboy. (laughs) And they showed him this cut of Atlantis, this early cut. And uh, Mike Mignola's looking at it and the story goes, he was looking at one of the shots of somebody's hands and he's like, dude, those are cool hands. And one of the animators looked at him and was like, Thanks, man. Those are your hands. <laughs> and he was just blown away. He's like, why the fuck are they animating a Disney movie in my style? <laughs> but that wasn't the end of his, like, complaining. Uh, the original cut of Atlantis, or the original versions of it while it was being worked out, not the not a final animated version that got, like, pared down in a work print, just early stages of it, was more of a thing where while they were going through the caverns getting to Atlantis, there were a bunch of monster fights. 
So they, they encountered giant, scary fucking monsters. And it was like a long time until they got to Atlantis. And some of the story people ultimately just like fucking were not about it. Because uh, one of them said they're like, okay, so I'm having this problem with the movie where when we get to Atlantis, I don't give a fuck. Can we fix that? And so they chopped out all the monster fights. And now it's just that kind of like trip through the cavern with the fireflies and some amount of small talk. So, yeah, there originally existed a very different version of this film. Interesting. Also, one thing, this is just the uh, Jewish Hollywood guy in me. Uh, This thing's budget that ultimately led to Disney people hating it could not have been helped by the fact that this originally, uh, the very first thing they animated was a sequence of some Vikings going to, like, fight or do battle with Atlantis or something and it was the first thing they animated and it was fucking huge and one day way down the pipeline uh one of the story people was like hey um we should destroy that we should cut that from the movie we should discard it which in animation is a big fucking (laughs) no-no Like, it was finished. It was completed and done and painted and shit. And they painstakingly threw that thing in the trash so that it could eventually be a deleted scene. And they redid a new sequence, the one where Kida is a four-year-old and Atlantis is going underwater. So, uh, yeah, it's not to say that this thing ran exactly smoothly over at Disney. Because when you're discarding entire intros, that means that you might be thinking a little too big and doing things a little bit too on the fly. Yikes. Yeah. I know you, Austin, you watched part of the uh, making of this movie. Are you aware of the, one of the writers of this movie? And do you have any information on it? I whenever I think of people who work on this movie, I just think of a bunch of people who went to get Mexican food after they finished the Hunchback of Notre Dame. I do not know about what the writer of this movie did. Please enlighten so you me, wa- Joe. So you want to know who the top credited writer on this? There's like, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six writers on this. Wait, do not tell me it's the guy who directed the Avengers. Wait, I have a better idea. It's Joss Whedon. Fuck! <laughs> Fuck! But wait, I was reading about this last night. Joss Whedon said that not a single shred of his story made it into the final movie. Why is huh. he the top credit? I Good question. It, it might be like the star meter kind of thing for like Letterboxd. That's probably why he's top credited. Oh, no. Now we're going to get the hashtag for release this uh, Whedon cut. No, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> release the Whedon cut of Atlantis the Lost Empire. <laughs> they need a lot of like fake feminism and shots of people falling into women's chests. <laughs> M- Milo falls into Kita's chest at one point <laughs> and they make like a whole like scene out of it. Can't wait to hear about Milo talking about brunch. <laughs> there, there, there's a scene where uh, Kita is waiting for the rest of them to like come back or like come visit the throne room in Atlantis and the camera is now just positioned right down by her ass as she's coming to meet the crew. <laughs> Milo's just running around the uh, the entire city, um, and it's like, oh, wow, this is awesome. It's like the city was lost, and there's like a whole empire here. It's like a lost empire. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I want to be kind of positive because I, I think the people coming from Treasure Planet podcast are probably going to expect us to say some nice things about the movie. So... Let's put our positivity hats on and say some things that we like about Atlantis, the Lost Empire. 
Let's reach deep within ourselves and display some of that classic Disney kindness. Joe, would you like to go? Yes, I, I did like the look of the movie. I will give it that. And I guess now that, that I know that it was very inspired by Mike Mingola, I, I, I like it a bit better. Even if he kind of screwed over Guillermo, that's besides the point. It is a very good-looking movie, to say the least. Like, I, I, I want to say, like, the biggest, like, awe um, moments uh, for me is when they reveal that submarine. Like, th- that's, like, the most, like, awe-inspiring visual of that. Like, I didn't even get that from when they revealed Atlantis, which... Uh, I mean, Atlantis also looks good, but that submarine's so cool. The reveal of Atlantis moment was kind of soured for me by the sudden reveal that the Atlanteans speak English and act like tour guides. Because up until that (laughs) moment, they were trying to kill them, revealed maybe they speak a little bit of French, and then out of nowhere, they just give you the fucking theme park Welcome to Atlantis! And it was so fucking stupid, and it ruined the reveal a little bit to me. Atlantis Park. (laughs) Sorry, I'm sorry. My positivity hat fell off. I'm so sorry, Joe. (laughs) All your fine mind fell off for a second, too, when I was talking about the reveal of Atlantis. I guess another positive thing that I can mention here. Let's see, who was... Okay, so it was James Newton Howard who did the score. The score is actually really pretty good in this. Again, going back to that submarine sequence, like, um, and they have the, that motif playing throughout the movie, too. I, I, I think it's a really good motif. The, uh, I guess you can call it the theme for Atlantis. It, it, it really help, helps to capture that, like, awe-inspiring visual. Tim, with the alley-oop, put your positivity hat on. Reach deep inside your soul. Say something nice about Atlantis. It good. Uh, no. <laughs> um, Elaborate yes. on that. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, it, but yeah, yeah. Like like you were saying, it has it has a really good animation style. It's uh, really one of the more gorgeous, I would say, Disney movies of the two thousands. Something that I had uh, seen a couple of posts in regards to was this is one of the more um, like diverse Disney animated movies, particularly for its time. It's one of the few movies that I can really say flopped and then became a cult hit within my lifetime. It was like one of the first times I've seen that happen, which I think is interesting to see stuff come around like that within my lifetime. I guess being in your 20s, that's when you really start to see that happen again because it's it's usually about 15 to 20 years when that second life comes in, I I would say. Yeah, I, I think it's aged well and not so well in various aspects, um, but... It's definitely one that I have a lot of friends who enjoy it. And I think there's reason for that. It's it's an entertaining, solid uh, movie. It's not too long. It could maybe be paced a little bit differently, but overall, um, pretty enjoyable. Okay, so um, this is not from me. This is from a video that I will show the title of right now. There was one person who did a video essay on this on YouTube. They said one of the good things about this movie was that Kida was not motivated by any men for her character arc. 
she was trying to get over the loss of her mother and that that was something unique in animated movies at the time. I did not notice that while watching this, but that's because I'm I'm not a girl and this person fortunately did. And it seems seems kind of fucking cool. That's that's at least unique. Meanwhile, I'm coming out here from the Marxist perspective. Tell me either of you noticed this. <laughs> Rourke, looking at the camera, saying, I'm more of an adventure capitalist. Uh, yeah, I I took note of that when he said that. And I was like, Austin's probably going to have a lot to say about this, isn't he? Here we are. So I have two pages of Dust Capital I would like to read. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that that was amazing and really strange because I never picked up on that as a kid, that there was anything about, like, any commentary about capitalism. I think you could make it, like, as plain as day that it's an anti-capitalist movie and an anti-imperialist movie, and just because it's a Disney animated feature, its audience will not fucking absorb it. Like, like, if you told me that Atlantis the Lost Empire had a blatant in-the-text critique on capitalism, I'd stare at you and be like, dude, you are too online. You need to get off Twitter. <laughs> and then I rewatched this shit, and I was like, no, it's just in there. That's fucking neat. <laughs> also, there is kind of a funny, shitty little academic dialogue about that. If you read, like, the Wikipedia portion, analyzing, like, the themes and stuff... In the beginning of the paragraph, it talks about how it's anti-capitalist. And then at the bottom, the, the critics had to round it out because when you make an anti-capitalist movie and an anti-imperialist movie, there is pushback. And the pushback was that some people said it had a segregationalist bent because the Atlanteans don't want to fuck with the humans after everything and they choose to keep Atlantis a secret. So, you know, if you resist imperialism because the first people you make contact with try to kill everyone in your civilization, you're being segregationalist. <laughs> Which I thought was, like, woefully transparent and in bad faith and funny. But, yeah, I, I guess stepping back from the themes a lot, I completely agree with Joe about the submarine going down. Watching them match move the uh, 2D cell animation into that amazing fucking submarine with the score was probably the best moment of the fucking movie. And I'm going to I'm going to rip off Roger Ebert real quick. Do you all know what Roger Ebert said about this fucking movie? Let's hear it. He gave this movie three and a half stars out of four. And he said that the final action sequence with the balloon trying to go up in that hole that they made in the volcano shaft was like one of the better animated action sequences in a movie that he'd ever seen. He was super on about that action sequence. It was all right. I guess it's a little bit cool. I still can't get over my feeling as a kid of watching work get cut with the shard of broken glass. Because, either have you seen Superman 3? Yes. I have not. There's a scene in Superman 3 where a woman gets dragged into a machine and forcefully turned into an android. And it scared the fucking shit out of me as a child. <laughs> And this is in the same exact filing cabinet of my brain as that woman getting forcefully turned into a robot is Rourke turning into a fucking rage monster at the end of that action sequence. <laughs> I, I guess uh, a good question, and, and my, to round this out, how do you compare this? How does this match up to other Disney movies? Because I gotta say, as a kid... I liked some of the direction that this went in. I liked that Disney was trying to, like, 
harken back to their Adventureland days and make a cool adventure movie. One of the things said in the documentary is that the makers of the movie, while they were collaborating, were like, let's make a movie that's kind of like Star Wars. Remember the first time you saw Star Wars? We also talked about what it felt like to see Star Wars for the first time. Let's make a Disney movie that reminds us of Star Wars. And I thought that was funny, considering how things played out. <laughs> I, I I thought that the movie was cool, but there are certain, like, uh, there are critiques of this movie that are like, who is this for? Who's the audience for this? Because I can say from experience, as someone who grew up to be edgy, that when I was a little kid, there were parts of this that just went whoosh right over me. Do you, do you wish that this had become the direction Disney went in? Do you like this compared? How do you like this compared to other Disney movies? Let's talk about Atlantis as a Disney movie for a second. How do you think it fits in in the scope of things? What could have been, Joe? Um, you know, I don't know. I I, I think if they had um maybe gone through, uh, well, they could have either added more to the film or either went through like a whole bit of a rewrite of the script, changed a few things out, moved a few things, maybe added a couple of things too. As a movie, I think it could have been better, but if we had gotten that better movie, I think this could have been an interesting direction for Disney to take had it been a hit. Because I, I also think, I, or at least I want to assume, it, it feels like Treasure Planet was also trying to go in that direction as well. And I think that's a much, mm. I think that is definitely a step up compared to Atlantis. I, I personally, I think I probably would have enjoyed Disney more if they had gone in that direction because I didn't state it when I was talking about my childhood experiences with it, but I did state it in uh, the Treasure Planet video. I was not a big Disney kid growing up, and I'm not a big Disney person now. I was more of a Warner Brothers kid. Had they had gone in a slightly more mature, um, but still like very kid-friendly, and they just made like all of these like wonderful little adventure movies. I don't know. I, I, I think it could have led to something better within Disney than what we got currently, but that's just me. Tim, I think you'd have a perspective on this, like related to anime somewhat, because one of the reasons that Disney doesn't make movies that are like princess Mononoke or spirited away is because Disney spent so long solidifying in America, the impression that animated movies are just for kids. So how, how do you feel about, you know, this and the, and the canon of like Disney as well as animated movies in general, since you have a unique background watching a bit of anime. Yeah. Um, so as far as Disney stuff goes, I agree with Joe. I think if this and Treasure Planet had been more of a success, that would have been a really interesting road for Disney to go into because those movies fall more in line with the kind of Disney stuff that I find more interesting. Like I, I'm not typically super big on the sing-song Disney stuff. There are a couple of movies in that vein that I do like a lot. I've I've never been big on musicals. They just kind of feel cringy to me for the most part, with a few exceptions. Atlantis, um, Treasure Planet, Black Cauldron, Mulan. These are all animated Disney movies that I like a lot, and they're all a little different from your standard Disney fare. 
which is a little more fanciful, a little more goofy. And, and I liked the stuff that was not too overly dark, but went into some darker places. I think those movies have a mix of some interesting traits as far as like you have your dark action stuff and you also have your your comic relief, your uh, colorful characters. And, and in the case of Black Cauldron, you have your cut scenes of people getting decapitated. But that's, you know, whatever. Um, Release the R-rated cut of the Black Cauldron, Disney. Don't be a Hell yeah. But yes, as far as like in the context of some other animation stuff that isn't Disney, I think this was their way of trying to go into those wheelhouses a little bit, touching on some stuff that they wouldn't have normally done, that they've done a couple of times that can sometimes be interesting. And I guess... um, more often than not, they tend to not be as successful upon initial release, but then we'll gain a cult following in the years to come. It's another one of those good gateways into like sci-fi and action anime and stuff like that for the period. If you are one of the kids that happened to catch this movie, another one that was in this same vein was the Don Bluth movie Titan A.E., which I watched that one again a couple of years ago. I think this was like my first year of college when I was at UCM in like 2011, 2012. It's been a hot minute since I rewatched it. Um, but I, I remember rewatching it and thinking as an adult, uh, there's there's some cringy stuff here. Like the college rock soundtrack was odd to me. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, like I, I really like the aesthetic of that. I think that that is something that was really cool to me. And that's what that was something that spoke to me in my childhood when I would rent movies like Titan AE or Atlantis. I actually went to see Treasure Planet in the theater. And like, I remember really liking that one and thinking, man, I can't wait for the Treasure Planet world in Kingdom Hearts 2. And that didn't happen. <laughs> nope. uh, yeah, I think this. I think that would have been a cool direction for Disney to go in is for them to dip their toes in uh, some different stuff that's a little different. Or, uh, it, it's some different stuff that's a little different, you know? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, some stuff that's a little more action-y, a little more sci-fi, a little darker in some places. Like I was saying, I think uh, probably my favorite of the like sing-songy Disney movies is either The Lion King or Mulan, and those are both kind of dark. Oh, yeah. Lion King was kind of polarizing when it came out. Most people don't remember this. I was reading an article from 2001 Today, and it was talking about how The Lion King divided critics, and I felt like I was reading an alternate history book. I was like, no, it didn't. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that sounds weird. I remember my scathing review of The Lion King in 1994 when I was one year old. What did you do? Take a shit? I just just shit right in through the uh, um, projector booth. 
It's like that's that's why I think of your movie. <laughs> Tim Sullivan, movie critic, baby, he's here to shit on your thirty-five millimeter projector. Oh God! Titan AE has a couple of one-ups on Atlantis. It came out one year before Atlantis, and it has exactly one percent higher of a Rotten Tomato score. <laughs> <laughs> It almost feels like somebody in this point in time was trying to open the portal to America having movies that are like anime releases in Japan. They had the blend of the CGI. They had the darker themes, more complicated stuff. Movies not just for kids. And that portal just fucking like a big fist came out and just punched that person. It was Goku. We failed to open the portal. Goku was just like, no, that belongs to Japan. Boom. Just fucking yeah i feel bad because it's almost like a rejection of a whole type of person like it's very believable that somebody would want animated like 2d movies for adults produced in america but it i guess we're just destined to a future where all of the animated movies for adults are just sex comedies ethan has entered the chat watch heavy traffic Watch heavy traffic. <laughs> Let's say our final words on stuff or any any loose comments. We're in the free jazz phase. Okay. Um I'll I'll just kind of give uh like who would I recommend it to or like how I would recommend it. Personally it wasn't for me. Uh but that's also just kind of a personal thing. Um I guess if you really liked the movie Avatar, I, I, I would I would highly recommend it. I mean I liked Avatar, but I was, I was kind of lukewarm on this. So I guess if you really liked Avatar, you might actually get a kick out of this. Then why does Tanner not like it? <laughs> good question. Um, that, that is a good question. Anyway, would, would I show it to, like, kids? Absolutely I would, but at, like, a certain age range. I, I think maybe, like, a 10, maybe a 12-year-old would get more out of this than, say, when I was five and watched it. I, I guess unless you want to put your kids down for a nap um, that are like four, three, five, maybe like that age range, it, it, it's probably a pretty good nap movie for your four or five year old. <laughs> right. Tim, who would you recommend this to? Any final words to say on the movie? Or, uh, yeah. Who would you recommend this to is a great idea, Joe. Thank you. Um, yeah, well, uh, like I said before, we even started recording a lot of the people I went to high school with are like the, the ones who I still stay in contact with, I, I should say, uh, like they they liked this movie as a kid and like they're part of the like cult following now. So it's hard to really say who I would recommend it to. But uh, I guess I like it. Like Joe was saying, maybe kids like aged between 8 and 12 would be a good starter audience for something like this. Like, I, I have some nephews and nieces. I would certainly watch it with some of them, not the younger ones, to be certain. Like, um, my oldest nephew is 13, and my youngest nephew is 1. So <laughs> we, we got we got a fairly big range there. I would say the ones on the older side of that, I would probably watch it with because I think they would probably get some enjoyment out of it. They're like most of them are like fans of Star Wars and fans of Disney in general. I would I would say those are the people I would recommend it to. And 
like I'd mentioned previously, I think it's a good gateway to anime style shows. So I guess if you're someone who is really, really big into anime and you're looking for something Western, like, like I'll say this, uh, I, I watch a lot of anime. I get more excited when I find a Western cartoon that I like. Because there's not as many of them. It's like a rare delicacy. Um, A rare, beautiful bird. Yeah. So, yeah, I think if you're in that audience and you haven't seen Atlantis, I would say give it a watch. You might enjoy it a lot. Uh, Yeah. I think if you grew up with this movie, you can be particularly MK ultra into liking it because in the final scene of the movie, Milo Thatch now living in secret down in Atlantis with his new wife or whatever, uh, gives the rich guy who financed the trip a little present. Like he, like the rich guy gave him a present in the beginning of the movie. And it's one of those necklace crystals that all the Atlanteans have saying, you know, this is the proof of Atlantis. Thank you for the journey. And the fact that in real life, a whole generation of kids got to go get McDonald's and a necklace of their own. I got to (laughs) say, that wasn't fair. I mean, that's just going to burn this thing in your mind like a fucking brand. And it still kind of works on me. And it probably works on a lot of other people. I think it comes down to how much you like Disney, how many animated films you've seen and where your taste levels are at and what you're in the mood for that night. I think Atlantis is a lot of people's movie, but there's also going to be a lot of people like us who went and rewatched it as adults and think that it has problems and understand why it's got a 49% on Rotten Tomatoes and bombed at the box office. So that is why soon we are going to do a podcast about the movie that beat the shit out of Atlantis. (laughs) That's right. Coming soon. From the Bob Squad, we're doing Shrek. For its 20th anniversary. (laughs) Stay tuned, everybody. Thank you for coming and watching this episode. Remember to like and subscribe. And in the the chat, if you could comment your favorite McDonald's movie tie-in toy, we'd appreciate it. Have a good rest of your day. Peace, bitches. Uh...